I should like to call your attention this morning to the words which are to be found in the book of the prophet Daniel, in the second chapter and the 44th verse, and the first verse of the second chapter of the gospel according to St. Luke. The book of the prophet Daniel, chapter 2, verse 44, and the first verse in the second chapter of the gospel according to St. Luke. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all of the world should be taxed. We interrupt our consideration of the epistle to the Ephesians, not only this Sunday, but I trust, God willing, next Sunday and the Sunday after, in order that we may consider more particularly this message to which our minds and hearts are directed at this time of the year, Christmas time, and the end of the year and the beginning of the new year. And so this morning we look at these two verses taken together and put into juxtaposition in order that we may consider what the Bible has to say concerning the true message of Christmas. Now there is nothing that is more wonderful about the Bible as one reads it as the way in which one finds that this great message, which is after all the central message of the Christian faith, is one which is to be found everywhere. The message of Christianity is not confined to the New Testament. It's there in the Old Testament. As St. Augustine first put it, it's there latent in the Old and patent in the New. And therefore it behoves us always to take these two together. And there is no doubt at all but that it was the direct leading of the Holy Spirit himself that caused the early church, even when it was mainly Gentile, to preserve the Old Testament scriptures and to put them together with their new uh, scriptures into one volume, showing thus that uh, it's one book and that the theme of the one book, both in the Old and in the New, is this uh, glorious fact, this great event of the coming of the Son of God into this world for our salvation. Now in the old, of course, you get it mainly in the form of prophecy. And uh, as one thinks of this aspect of the message, one is uh, really in difficulties because of the uh, bewildering extent of the matter. The prophecies are almost endless. Uh, they are found in almost every book of the Bible and they, uh, they are put in different forms and in different pictures. The Lord Jesus Christ is foreshadowed and foretold in the Old Testament, uh, I say, in almost, almost an endless variety of manners. So our material is uh, almost bewildering in its extent. Now, I have felt uh, led to direct your attention to this particular prophecy because of the message that it gives us at this present time. 
Now there again is something that is always very wonderful about the Bible. That it doesn't matter what may be happening to us in this world, the Bible always has its relevant message. The Christian faith is not merely a matter of personal salvation. It has a world view. And therefore it speaks to every time, to every era, to every epoch in the history of struggling mankind. And so whenever we find ourselves in some particularly difficult situation and are tempted perhaps almost to be overcome by it, if we know our scriptures and if we search them, we shall find a word that is particularly appropriate. And here, as I want to try to show you, we have at one and the same time one of the great prophecies of the coming of the Son of God. But because of the particular form in which it was put and which it takes, it gives to those of us who are Christian this morning and who view all things with a Christian eye, one of the greatest messages of comfort and of consolation and of final assurance that we can ever have. Now, all I want to do this morning is to make a number of comments upon the uh, statement which I've read to you out of this 44th verse of this second chapter of Daniel, because it, really there is no need to do anything more than that. The whole message is here for us in all its glory and in all its fullness. The first thing I would comment on, however, is this. Let us notice the time at which this happened, the precise historical situation when this amazing event took place. The king Nebuchadnezzar had his dream, which Daniel alone was able to recall and to decipher. Now the precise time when all this happened was this. The children of Israel, because of their sins, had been attacked and conquered by the great empire of Babylon, and they had been carried away into captivity. The city of Jerusalem had been destroyed. The temple was a mass of rubble and of ruins. And all that Israel had ever prided herself in, in a sense, uh, lay there in a desolate and in a hopeless condition. The land was derelict, and the children of Israel themselves were there as captives, indeed as slaves, under the domination of this great world power. Nebuchadnezzar and his mighty kingdom. Now, it was one of the last points which the kingdom of Israel and the children of Israel ever touched. They were the people of God and they had got their great promises, but here they were in this miserable and pitiable condition. Never, I say, had things seemed more utterly hopeless Never were they, were they in a more parlous and in a more helpless condition. But you see, it was just there and just then, in that situation, that this tremendous thing happened. And this message was given to them, full of hope, full of a bright future, full of a certainty which nothing could remove and nothing could destroy. Now, here I say is something which is absolutely typical of God's method. There is something that you find running throughout the Bible as a recurring theme. 
You get it in the very beginning in the book of Genesis. You watch those men whom God has set his affections upon. And you will find that constantly he seems to allow them to get into some hopeless position. And they are feeling utterly disconsolate and their enemies are full of triumph and of rejoicing. And suddenly God comes in. Now it's always been his method. And it is a very essential part of the message of the Christian faith. Typified, of course, uh, above all other incidents in the coming of the Son of God into the world. For again, uh, we can repeat almost the exact words. When the Lord Jesus Christ was born into this world, once more, the situation was completely hopeless. You remember that since the prophet Malachi there had been no word from God as it were. For 400 long years there had been no true prophet in Israel. God seemed to be silent. The children of Israel seemed to be abandoned to themselves. And uh, within comparatively recent times uh, their country had been conquered again, this time by the great Roman Empire. And they were again more or less as vassals and in a condition of slavery. Dominated by this great world power once more. There they are with no hope as it were. Everything has gone wrong. It's at that, that time. Into that kind of situation. When it was least expected. That God did the greatest thing of all. He sent his only begotten Son into the world to rescue and to redeem. Well, now I say it would be a very simple thing for us to spend the rest of our morning in just elaborating that particular principle. Because, you see, that's the great thing that stands out in the whole history of the Christian church. And that is why I say this message is of such comfort and of such strength to Christian people at the present time. How often has the Christian church seemed to have come to the very end of its tether? Read the story. You'll find it happening repeatedly. The church herself had become lifeless and helpless and hopeless. Her enemies had become loud and proud and arrogant, convinced that Christianity was finished, that the doors of the churches were about to be shut for the last time. Everything was hopeless. A bleak midwinter had settled upon the church. And then, suddenly and quite unexpectedly, into the night and the winter of the discontent, God sends a mighty and a glorious revival. Now, there it is, I say, on the very surface. It's here in the prophecy. The prophecy was fulfilled, and it has gone on being fulfilled ever since. So that, my dear Christian friends, this morning, as we find ourselves and see the Christian church but a dwindling remnant in this sinful, arrogant world of man in his pride, and as so many begin to feel hopeless and to wonder what's going to happen, and some get so excited, here, I say, is the message of God. It has been his custom throughout the centuries to come and to visit his people when they have least expected it. Who knows? But that round the corner there may be waiting for us a mighty and a glorious revival of religion. Let us take hold of this great principle.
But let me go on and point out some other things. Notice in the second place the way in which this message came. How exactly it came. And there is something to me quite enthralling about this. I feel that there is an element here almost of divine humor. You notice the way in which God chose to give his message of comfort and of encouragement to his depressed and hopeless people. He did so through the person of this great man, this great king Nebuchadnezzar. This man is described as a king of kings. He is certainly one of the greatest kings that the world has ever seen. One of those outstanding potentates. A man who conquered the then known world and was triumphant over all. Set up in great pomp and authority and power. A pagan, of course. A man who didn't believe in God and who didn't know him. And there he is seated in all his pomp, feeling that he's almost a god. And indeed, you remember the story, the history tells us later on, that he was very ready to believe that he was a god, and exalted himself and lifted himself up in his pride and in his arrogance. Here is a man who's invincible, whom nobody can ever touch. Well, you remember the way that God chose to bring his message was this. He gave this man a dream. Now, there's no doubt about that. It wasn't an accident. Nebuchadnezzar's dream was caused and was produced by God. The great man sleeping one night suddenly had a dream about this great image with a head of fine gold and the breast and arms, you remember, of silver and the main trunk of brass and the legs of iron and the feet of iron and of clay. He had this wonderful dream. But, of course, like many great men... He woke up in the morning and couldn't remember exactly what his dream was. So filled was his mind with affairs of state and so on. But the dream had left an impression upon his mind. It had rather disturbed him. He couldn't understand it while he was dreaming. But he had a very uncomfortable feeling within him that it had some curious significance. And there he was. He couldn't remember what it was and wished he could. However, he's a great man and he's got his astrologers and soothsayers and seers and wise men. He's got a great array of philosophers. And, of course, he's simply to commend them and they'll tell, them, tell him all about it. So he did commend them. But, alas, not a man amongst them could tell him what the dream was. Still less, of course, could they give him the interpretation. And here he is, fuming in a rage, insisting that unless these men... Uh, can t remind him of what the dream was and what it means, he's going to kill them all. Well, there happened to be amongst these men, these servants, this man Daniel, who was a Jew, an Israelite, one of the people who were in captivity. And the message comes to him as it comes to all the other wise men. But because he's one of God's children, he goes to God. And he pleads with God to have mercy upon him and upon his fellows and his people. And God, of course, reveals the dream to him and the interpretation of the dream. And so the account tells us how Daniel, having revealed this to the men in charge of him, he in turn tells the king, and Daniel is brought in into the presence of the king. And to the astonishment of everybody, he repeats the dream, and he gives the interpretation of the dream. That's how God did it. 
You see, he did it in such a way as to humble this great man, this colossus that seems to stand astride the earth in his might and in his greatness and in his glory. This, you know, Christian people, is one of the things that ought to make us shout with laughter. That's how God did it. Gives the men a dream that he can't remember and can't understand and then produces some unknown person, one of his own people, to show his wisdom and his understanding and his glory. He humbles the great men. He brings him down, as it were, and then gives him a prophecy that tells him the final truth about himself and about all who are like him. If you and I are depressed by what's happening in the world today, well, it's because we're not truly Christian in our thinking. This is the whole story of the Bible, these great powers that have risen against God. And everybody has believed that they're going to be triumphant. Suddenly God arises. And in a most contemptuous manner, I use my terms advisedly, he just humbles them and puts them in their place and goes on with his wonderful purpose. Many powers have arisen in the past that seem to be threatening the extermination of Christianity. They've all gone. And every power that is in the world today that seems to be threatening the Christian faith will go in exactly the same way. And we can anticipate that as God pricked this particular bubble called Nebuchadnezzar, he will do so again. That's how he did it. That's the method he chose. chose. And he has so frequently done, done that. He brings down the great and the mighty, and he exalts the humble. But now let us come actually to a consideration of the message itself. For it is full of the... Most extraordinary things. Let me just note them. I can only give my headings hurriedly this morning. You notice that first and foremost, God gives here a prophecy of the exact time when his son is going to be born into this world. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. You read the story again for yourself, for yourselves when you go home. And you will find that that is a direct reference to the time of the Roman Empire. You remember, don't you, how the dream indicated that there was going to be a succession of kingdoms. First of all, this head of gold. And Daniel tells him in the interpretation that is Nebuchadnezzar himself and the kingdom of Babylon. But that in turn is going to be followed by a kingdom of silver. That is the kingdom of the Medo-Persian dynasty. That was in turn to be replaced by a kingdom of brass. That is the kingdom of Greece. Alexander the Great, so-called. And that in turn was to be followed by this kingdom of iron. With its divisions and the admixture of clay as well. And that is, of course, the Roman Empire. Now, here in this dream, which is the form that the prophecy takes... God is predicting and foretelling what was not known at that time, that this mighty kingdom of Babylon was going to be conquered by the Medo-Persians. They were going to control the whole world. They were going to be conquered by Alexander the Great, the Greeks. He, in turn, was going to go down in his kingdom and was going to be replaced by the Roman Empire. 
And then you see we are told when the Roman Empire is in the fullness of its sway and its sovereignty, God is going to set up his kingdom. He's going to send his son as king and start this mighty kingdom of heaven. And so you see that first verse in Luke 2 tells us that it was then it happened. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar, Caesar Augustus. The particular Caesar, the emperor of Rome at that time, whose name happened to be Augustus. So here we have one of those endless instances of the particularity of Old Testament prophecy. It doesn't merely prophesy the coming of the Son of God into the world generally and vaguely. It tells us the exact time. Later on in the ninth chapter of this book of Daniel, it is still more particular and fixes the very year when he came. Micah tells us that he was to be born in Bethlehem and so on and so forth. Notice the particularity. And let us draw the great lesson from that, which is that God is controlling history. It was when the fullness of the times had come that God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that are under the law. And here he's announcing that at that particular point, he's going to set up his kingdom in the person of his only begotten Son. Very well. Let's hurry on to look at the characteristics of the kingdom. And here as we do so, we shall see a summary of the gospel. The thing that is emphasized is that this kingdom is going to be essentially different from all the other kingdoms. There we've been given an account of these various other kingdoms. God is going to set up his kingdom and it's going to be absolutely different. In what respects? Well, here are some of them. The first thing is that it's not going to be a kingdom that is going to rise out of any one of the other kingdoms. It's a kingdom that will arise independently, apart from, entirely distinct from. You remember that in the case of the other kingdoms, they're all joined onto one another, as a head is joined onto the trunk. Head and neck and trunk and arms, and then down you go to the thighs and to the legs and to the feet and to the toes. Now, there is a unity there. You start with the head and out of that comes the chest, and out of that comes the trunk, out of that comes, each one comes out of the other. And that was, of course, what actually happened in history. Each one of these earthly kingdoms arose out of the ruins of the previous one. A great conqueror, a great military chieftain came, who conquered the other great one, demolished him and his kingdom, set up his own kingdom on the foundation of the other. And that happened to him, and on it goes. Each one comes out of the previous one. This kingdom isn't going to be like that. It doesn't belong to that body. It doesn't belong to that order at all. Let us never forget, therefore, that this image in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar not only literally describes those four kingdoms and empires, but it typifies and represents all earthly, human, worldly power. But this other kingdom doesn't belong to them. And that is, of course, something that we should never lose sight of. The kingdom of God is not a kingdom of this world. That is why our Lord said to Pontius Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom. 
And that is where you see the Church of Rome so denies the gospel. She claims to be a secular power as well as a spiritual power. She is an earthly power. And thereby she shows plainly and clearly that she is not scriptural in her very foundation, that her central thinking is wrong. And all other, uh, other churches that model themselves upon it and are anxious to be united to the state put themselves more or less into the same category. This kingdom does not belong to the earthly kingdoms at all. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's an unseen kingdom. It is a kingdom in the hearts of men. That is God's kingdom. It doesn't belong to the image. But then let me point out something still more wonderful. It is a kingdom that presents a striking contrast in its lowliness and in its apparent insignificance. Did you get that? Did you notice that this is a kingdom which is compared to a stone cut out without hands? And you see at once the striking contrast. You remember the description of the other kingdom, don't you? There was this marvelous and this wonderful head which was made of fine gold. Then the next was of silver. Then the next was of brass. Then the next was of iron. Now these are the most precious metals known. And the kingdoms of the world, you see, are great and wonderful in their pomp and their majesty and their external show and all their glory. Gold, silver, brass, iron. And then there's this other little kingdom, a stone. Nothing precious about a stone. In fact, they're so common that they're a nuisance. You don't have to dig for stones. The difficulty is to get rid of them. There they are, just ordinary stones, a stone, in contrast with the gold and the silver and the brass. Oh, what a perfect description of the kingdom of God. Now I say that we must never lose sight of this. It's an essential part of the whole of the biblical message. The children of Israel seem so small and insignificant in their origin God started this in one man called Abram, just one man. Israel didn't start as a great nation like the others. No, it just began in that humble way. And he was a man who was pushed here and there. You remember, had to live on top of the mountains as it were for a while. That's the way in which it came. And it's always been like that. Israel was a very small country. And when you contrast her with these great empires, how insignificant she always seemed to be. But that isn't really the thing to emphasize. The thing to emphasize is this. Look what happened when God's Son came into this world. Where was he born? Oh, it wasn't in a king's palace. Not into purple. Not surrounded by gold and silver and brass. Born in a stable. Placed in a manger. The stone. Nothing could be more lowly, nothing could be more humble. Born into a very poor family that couldn't afford to sacrifice a lamb, they could only buy turtle doves. 
There was nothing more humble and more lowly. It's all in that picture of the stone. It shows us the humble origin of our Lord as born in the flesh. The insignificance of his position. Himself insignificant as a teacher because he wasn't a Pharisee and had never been to the schools. The insignificance of the whole of his kingdom just followed by a rabble of ordinary common poor people spending most of his time in Galilee and not at the center, not in the capital, not in Jerusalem and in Judea. There it is, the stone contrasted with the gold and the silver and the brass and the iron. And then let me reinforce this by putting before you the next statement. It was a stone that was brought out, we are told, without hands. Did you notice the repetition of that? Each time this stone is mentioned, that is added. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. Each time he repeats that. Why? Well, here again, of course, is one of the essential points in connection with the Christian message. And especially as we couple this with the previous point about the insignificance and the lowliness and the humility associated with it all. That is the other thing that always characterizes God's actions. On the one hand, they seem to be much lower than men. On the other side, they are infinitely higher than men. A stone, yes, but cut out without hands. Which means this, of course, that everything that happened in connection with the coming of the kingdom of God was entirely apart from all human agency, all human ability, all human power, all human policy, and all human understanding. A stone appears. Man hasn't suddenly dug it out of the quarry. No, a stone comes out of the mountain without hands. Man's done nothing at all about it. It just happens. It comes. In other words, you see, it's entirely God's action. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. No human instrumentality. God's action. When the fullness of the times was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. It's all God. So that here, you see, we have this extraordinary mystery, this amazing paradox. The humility and the glory, the insignificance and the Godhead. Man, a babe, placed in a manger, yet eternal son of God, and both together. The mystery, the marvel. The miracle of it all. And here it is, you see, prophesied so long ago in the interpretation of this dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had and which Daniel alone could interpret. But let me remind you that all this is not only true of the Son of God himself, the King of the kingdom, isn't it so perfectly and absolutely true of the kingdom itself? Look again, I say, at the beginning of the kingdom of God, as seen especially in the form of the Christian church. Could there possibly have been a more insignificant beginning? 
As I say, it started by his just preaching to common, ordinary, poor people. He didn't spend his time in king's palaces. The first disciples were not the great men of the world. They were just ordinary artisans. Publicans and sinners went crowding into the kingdom, we are told, the learned and the noble and the rich. They were all outside practically. Just this, that's the kingdom. And he goes, he goes back to heaven and leaves it all in the hands of just these insignificant men. And you read the book of the Acts of the Apostles and you say, well, of course, this is monstrous. It cannot possibly continue. How can this stand up against the centuries of the Jewish religion? How can this stand up against the great Roman Empire? What can this do in the face of Greek philosophy? It's hopeless. It's a stone cut out without hands. But you know the story, you know what happened. And the explanation, you see, is still the same. It's not man's action. The stone was cut out without hands. You simply cannot explain the spread of Christianity in terms of the first disciples and apostles. It's utterly monstrous. It's ridiculous. No, no, there's only one explanation. The ordinary insignificant men and the, the authorities met together and they said, what is this? How can we put a stop to this? Who are these men? They said, these are insignificant. They're unlettered and they're untutored. And yet they seem to have worked this miracle. What is this? And there was only one explanation. Somebody said, these are the men who have been with Jesus. And the Holy Ghost had come upon them. It's God. Cut out without hands. It's divine. It's supernatural. It's miraculous. That's the Christian church. And this reminder was never more needed by the church than it is today. Do you know, my friends, the church is as she is today because she's forgotten this very thing. She's been trying to buttress herself and her message by human learning, philosophy, understanding. We say we must have a learned ministry rather than men filled with the Holy Ghost. And we must adopt worldly methods of advertising and of organizing. We are going to do it. And we don't do it and we can't do it. It was never meant to be. It's a kingdom that has come into being without hands. And man must put his hands back behind himself and look to God and realize that it's God's doing. You see it in the king, you see it in the kingdom. But let me hurry with the remaining points. Notice the extent of the kingdom. We are told that this kingdom shall break in pieces and consume all these other kingdoms. And you know there is a sense in which it's already done that. There is a yet greater sense in which it's going to do it. Do you remember that within some three centuries this despised little sect became the official religion of the great Roman Empire? And when the Goths and the Vandals came down and sacked and ruined Rome, what little was left of civilization was preserved by the Christian church. There was nothing in a sense that wasn't conquered except the Christian church. Everything else went. And so the church and the church alone remained when the world was again almost reduced to chaos. And this gospel of the kingdom has spread throughout the whole world at different times and in different centuries. 
It has risen above all these other kingdoms. And there have been kings and great emperors who have bowed the knee already to the Lord Jesus Christ. But I say it is yet to come in a more glorious and in a more wonderful manner. For there is a day coming when at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. Of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth. And every mouth shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Have you heard the angels shouting and saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. It's coming. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords because, as the interpretation of the dream reminds us, this is an invincible kingdom. And in the days of those kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Never. It's an invincible kingdom. Did you notice this other interesting phrase? And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. Now there's a better translation which we can put like this. Its sovereignty and its power shall never be transferred to other hands. You see, this kingdom, as I've been reminding you, is absolutely different from every earthly kingdom. Who would ever have thought that the power and the sovereignty would ever be taken out of the hands of a Nebuchadnezzar? But it was. And in turn, when the great Medo-Persian prince came, Cyrus and others, it seemed absolutely invincible. But no, the power was taken from him and put into other hands. And so with Alexander the Great, and so with the Caesars, and so with all of them. But the power and the sovereignty and the glory and the might has never been taken out of the hands of King Jesus. And never shall be. He must reign till all his enemies shall be made his footstool. His pomp, his authority, his power will never pass into other hands. Men have tried to wrest it from him throughout the centuries. Even his own people have tried to do it and have risen up against him to exalt themselves. They've always been humbled and humiliated and finally destroyed. His kingdom shall stand forever. He is the only king, the king eternal, immortal, invincible. And so I say we must realize that it is an everlasting and eternal kingdom that God has set up. In the days of those kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And it has stood for nearly 2,000 years. And it is as secure this morning as it has ever been. The attacks of kings and warriors and armies have failed to destroy it in the past centuries. The attack of philosophers and higher critics 
and all who exalt themselves in their supposed wisdom in the last century has left it unmoved, impregnable and invincible. And it will last and it will continue until again when the fullness of the times has come. He will come back again into this world riding upon the clouds of heaven visibly the King of kings and the Lord of lords and he will finally rout his every enemy and cast them to perdition, break them to pieces and set up even in this earth which shall be purified and cleansed his eternal kingdom, the kingdom of God a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness and shall reign from pole to pole. Very well. What is the conclusion? The conclusion is that drawn by the author of the epistle to the Hebrews. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be removed, let us hold fast, let us be steadfast. The one thing that matters this morning is that we belong to this kingdom. The kingdoms of this world, whatever form they may take, whether military, as I say, or social, or political, or philosophical, whatever the form, talk about the gold, and the silver, and the brass, and the iron. Exalt them as you will. They're all going. They're all to be destroyed and will for certain be destroyed. Listen, for as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay and the silver and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter and the dream is certain and the interpretation thereof sure. The saddest people, the people most to be pitied in this world this morning, are those who are admiring the gold and the silver and the brass and the iron and clinging to it and thinking it's marvelous and it's wonderful and who despise the Christian church and the Christian faith. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. It's the only reward they'll get a little pomp and show and pleasure in this passing sinful world, and then destruction everlasting from the presence of the Lord. But we who belong to this despised body called the church shall reign with him in glory and share his glory forever and forever. My dear friend, I ask you this personal question. Are you a citizen of this kingdom which cannot be destroyed, whose power shall never pass to another? Have you been made anew, not by the hands of men or men's manipulation or understanding, but by the hands of God? Have you undergone the second birth? Have you the authority to become a son of God? Are you born not of the flesh, nor of the will of men, nor of blood, but of God?
If so, you are in the kingdom and you will remain in it though the whole world rock and shake in the convulsion of an Armageddon. You are secure because you belong to a kingdom which never can be removed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath visited and redeemed his people. Amen.